Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Okay, we started. Oh, am I going? Okay, welcome to Addiction Connection episode 24, I believe. Yes, we have Alex Hubble, inventor. Doctor. Dr. Alex Hubble, inventor of the Hubble telescope. Or not. Or not. Okay, he did not. He's an addiction doctor here in the Twin Cities, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about neurofeedback. Thank goodness, because I don't think you know what that actually means. I'm kind of an expert, but not. In that. So he actually gave this as a talk initially on our ECHO program, and it was great. And so we're going to put on a podcast today. And so Alex, it's all about you. Full disclosure, I don't really know exactly what it means either. So we're just kind of, we'll figure it out together here. That's good. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It was it was nice doing the talk, um, and I think this is an interesting topic, so I'm always happy to talk about it. You know, um, it was a great talk. We had a lot of great feedback. We had a lot of feedback. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could be measuring the, the physiology while we were doing it, we might yes. be approaching our therapy. Well, so, you could probably put little probes in our brains. Uh, we'll volunteer for Kurt first. I would love that, <laughs> especially for Kurt. I don't like know what's la- going on in there. Like a lab rat. There'd be like squirrels and birds everywhere. So tell us how you got interested in this whole thing. Yeah. So I had no idea what it was. Hadn't heard of it um, until I read the wonderful book, The Body Keeps the Score oh. by Bessel van der Kolk. Right? It's, did I say that right? It, yeah, you did. Yeah. And it's the best it's book incredible. ever. Yeah. Everybody should read it if they haven't. I choose to quote unquote read by Audible. Uh, this is not an endorsement, but. Me too. Yeah. It, I, it, I, I do own the book too, though. It's likewise. Yep. Do you follow him on Instagram? I no, I don't have any social media. Okay, well yeah. that's smart. But I follow him on Instagram. It's a daily dose of little Maybe, snips and bits. From I kind of want Instagram just for that. Actually, it is yeah. amazing. I don't even know what Instagram is, but go. <laughs> so he is a world-renowned trauma um, specialist, uh, psychiatrist out of Boston, and really talks about you know the book is all about trauma, and this is one of the lesser-known modalities of treatment um, Mm -hmm. and one of the better indications for it. But essentially the best way to talk about it is by, I think most people have heard or tried to, you know, have seen the idea of biofeedback, which is essentially watching your body as you are attempting to change your response to something. Um, The cool thing about it is I actually heard from uh, my dad when I started talking about this, that he did this, 30 years ago, biofeedback, not neurofeedback. Oh, I was like, neurofeedback? <laughs> I'm like, for uh, asthma pioneer. and like the anxiety around breathing hmm. um, and sort of helping control his breathing around uh, just using, you know, watching your, your pulse, for instance, and checking your pulse rate. I have the, anxiety because Heather keeps breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Long story. Oh my goodness. Keep going, please. The, no, keep going. The, um, you know, the current biofeedback modalities are more or less on equal footing with the neurofeedback ideas as far as how well they work um, for all the same conditions. Hmm. And they measure things like heart rate variability on top of just your heart rate and your pulse rate. And the neurofeedback is the same idea where you're watching your physiology, but you're doing it through EEG recordings. Um, So you're watching your brain waves on all these different frequencies and a trained expert will take a look at those 
um, frequencies and show you, you know, how that correlates to the symptoms you're having based on your disease. And they can then select, you know, a goal for you um, based on the protocol they have around that to then reinforce a new behavior. Do you, so do let's they, break that down a little bit. Can I ask a question just yeah. about that? Because I was going to make fun of Kurt and say areas of his brain probably had flat lines, but um, do they ever go in thinking, okay, we're expecting it to be this part of the brain and we're going to just kind of pick modalities based on that and then realize it's a totally different area of that person's brain that's actually being weird? You know, and I, I think the biggest issue with this is there's so many things to be looking at and there's so little consensus on what the sort of quote-unquote right way to do it is sure. that you can sort of make it up if you want. Um, mm. Kind of like know, COVID. We don't know. We'll just wing it. And I, I, Yeah, more or less. No, it's, and that's, you know, when I talk to people who do the practice, that's one of their biggest concerns is that there's, there's little, you know, cohesion in the field on, sure. on how you do it and what, what research is being done and how they are proving, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Mm. Um, there's certainly, and, and the, the other issue is, is that most insurance companies aren't really keen on this probably because the evidence isn't strongly supporting its efficacy. Um, and they, you know, different proprietary institutions will say, this is my way of doing it. This is my equipment. And then they won't want to share that and collaborate because they want to have their own sort of monopoly for their idea. So I'm, I'm really kind of not painting the best picture to start with, but it's, okay. it's, it's definitely going to get better. I promise. The hard I thing is, is it's hard to do research on something when you can't get money to do research and then nobody can agree on the modality. So right. It's hard to do like a meta-analysis of anything when nothing's done the same. And the more current research on this is actually the University of Minnesota is doing a ton of um, research on addiction across the board. You know, everything from the pharmacology to diagnosis to treatment strategies. They have, I don't know, at least in the teens, if not 20s, of of PhD postdoc researchers doing all different sides of this. Um, Mm. It's a really fascinating team. And uh, a couple of them are doing work on neurofeedback using fMRI instead of EEG. So mm-hmm. instead of having a nice, you know, convenient office-based situation, you've got very expensive machines, very specific areas of, um, you know, of, of trying to pinpoint areas of the brain instead of doing the more broad stroke EEG readings. Yeah. I would think that the functional MRI is much easier to read. Well, there's a trade-off, right? You got the functional MRI, which gives you a lot of good information. Um, but you're very limited by the fact that you have to have an MRI machine. You Correct. have to have very specifically trained people to do it. You, you know, it's, it's less scalable if yeah. you will, right now. It's not like um, you're going to put one in every clinic. Right. And as opposed to my experience, right? So I am very interested in this for myself because there is a lot of research on this for ADHD. And I was actually diagnosed with ADHD in my 30s. And everybody I told goes, what, you, you didn't know that? <laughs> uh, I thought this was okay. This is awkward. <laughs> um, basically, uh, I, I'm very interested in that side of it. And there's a lot of good evidence, double-blinded studies and such to say that this works for ADHD and other studies that say it doesn't work. Mm. So there's new research all the time coming out to, to show, you know, what's going to prove one way or the other if, uh, how this goes. I think there's one in Canada that's really um, recent um, that I, you know, of course, I haven't looked at. After I got the <laughs> reference, um, but there, you know, that's a big target as, as well as trauma and just, you know, um, a lot of these, um, uh, the research on it looks at excitation, you know, correlations, and and they try to tie that to symptoms, you know, mm-hmm. that are maybe cut across trauma, ADHD, anxiety, depression, 
And it's in there, they're trying to, to focus on certain patterns, but not necessarily on diagnoses and like overall improvement of diagnoses, which I think, again, is kind of limiting their, their overall uh, ability to, to make this a, a thing. So what kind of, kind of, I'm going to finish off of what he was saying. So I'm going to go first. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned trauma, trauma, trauma. Now you've mentioned that they're kind of overriding things, which may then at some point help narrow down diagnoses better when you say trauma i mean that can mean a million and a half things like is there like an overriding we focus on this type of trauma is there a specific or is it more just trauma well they focus on um response like sort of your excitation and your ability to calm yourself a lot of the you know in in one way shape or form and there are brain waves like theta waves that we know are you know, showing a certain waveform when you're calm and you're not, you know, you're able to really, I've never um, had those. No, me either. Yeah. And so that's your next study on ADHDPS. <laughs> that's why I'm doing this for myself. Cause I want to, you just, you know, it's, it's a, it's sort of an, almost like a subconscious or unconscious redirecting of your brain. Um, and essentially, you know, Oh, I had a really good thought process going, you know, you're, you're targeting <laughs> symptoms and uh, boat. Um, and you, you know, it, if, if if there's cross-cutting areas to be looking at, then you can maybe improve um, a global sense of well-being without mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, obviously improving your PHQ-9 scores or your GAD-7 scores. You so, know? And that's the goal maybe in our research, but um, it's a patient experience. It's a function improvement that is sure. what I'm being described as is what they're looking for, right? So it's like, you know, you got a shoulder injury. Your x-ray is not going to change if you go through physical therapy, Correct. but you're going to get a better experience in your, in your day-to-day life. Good mm. comparison. That so, was from my uh, therapist. So yeah. can you give us examples where this was kind of started to be used early on and, and where it's being used now with what type of results? Yeah, great uh, question. It was, so, you know, EEG, <laughs> neurofeedback. Um, EEG, was, I think, came out in the 50s, I want to say, or maybe even earlier, but neurofeedback really was part of their treatment strategies I'm sorry, EEG, not that I'm looking at my notes, was invented in 1924. Whoa. I know. Right about the time you were born, Kurt. You (laughs) looked at me knowing that was coming. And this is, you know, this whole feedback idea is kind of like a, you know, Pavlovian conditioning response, right? So you're trying to recreate patterns that you're you're aiming for. And they actually started the idea of, of... using the EEG rhythms and, and trying to do conditioning with that back even in 1930. Wow. So they didn't necessarily have this as a therapeutic idea right away, but they noticed that, that that's a possible result early on. Wow. So, you know, I know when Bessel van der Kolk, I don't even know what to call him. Like, I can't call him Bessel because, you know, it's like Dr. <laughs> Amory. You can't just say his name. You just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, Get to the point. Anyway, so... In that book, you know, The Body Keeps a Score, he really kind of takes away the G87s and the PHQ9s and all of the different diagnoses and really kind of tells them all to trauma. And it's just your body's reaction to the trauma now created depression or anxiety. And so when he started doing the EEG things from when I remember when I read the book a year ago, it was more just trying to, again, siphon out how you reacted to create the depression or the anxiety. Right, right. And it's, you know, that's why I really like working with this in addiction, right? Because there's so many comorbid diseases that we work on along with addiction. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, that's the rule more than the exception, it seems like, you know, I think the evidence shows pretty close to, what is it officially like an opioid use is sort of like 30% of people have some kind of other mental health diagnosis. I would think across the board, we're getting close to 50-50, right? Yeah, it's gotta be higher, but yeah, if not higher, right? And but then it's hard to know, is it? But there's a lot of yeah. cross-cutting symptoms, right? When we're first seeing people who are stabilizing mm-hmm. in their addiction, um, they have often, you know, anxiety 
right? Specifically anxiety, um, whether it's related to their use or their withdrawal or just totally changing their life. Um, there, there's symptoms that look like mental health diseases. Correct. Um, even if they don't necessarily carry those or they get better over time. Um, I see neurofeedback as a way to not only help improve adjunct therapy around these comorbid disorders, but also just potentially improve people's function and their ability to, you know, cope with all the strong feelings they're having around their changes. So how how does that actually, (laughs) I got it. Um, how does that actually work then for a patient? What's the patient experience? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say that there is not great evidence to say that neurofeedback can improve. Actually, there's no evidence to say that it can improve outcomes in substance use, right? Okay. Um, we, we, uh, they have studied that, and, and they see improvement in cravings, but that they don't necessarily see a, uh, an ongoing improvement in use or, or you know, otherwise. Interesting. Um, partly is because of the way that, it's in, that it, you, know, you have to adhere to the regimen, right? It's typically, you know, you can see results in the first couple sessions, and there are some really good double-blinded studies around tobacco cessation about sure. this sham comparisons and such that yep. really were well designed and showed just with a couple sessions reduction in nicotine use. Um, but uh, the typical regimen is 10 to 20 sessions, you know, maybe with some updates down the line, you want to, you know, you're doing it maybe once or twice a week. So it's a pretty long course. Well, and mm-hmm. I would think, you know, to do a good study on substance uses, you'd have to not have any confounding issues. Like you can't be on MAT and then call it worthwhile. Well, then if you're not at MAT, which is obviously the gold standard, and now they're, they're relapsing or cravings and all that, it's probably hard to keep them in a study for 20 weeks. And if you can't do all those other adjunct therapies, it's yes. like an ethical thing. Right. And, and that, this is the one thing I love about it is it's really a purely adjunct therapy. Right. It doesn't really interfere with the... Um, the way that medicines interact with the brain. So the way, I've, the way I've come to understand it is, you know, we're talking when we see patients and we're especially when we're getting them stable on Suboxone, you know, because we work with that. Or buprenorphine more. since, you know, can't say names. Excuse me. Thank well, you. we can. We're not getting paid, but so. It's true. When we're helping people with buprenorphine or even with methadone, you know, we, we talk about cravings. And right. I, I don't know about you guys, but I think the standard is to, you know, typically try to talk about cravings with, you know, other ways of trying to deal with those besides just the medications. You don't just titrate meds to completely eliminate cravings. You try to find other reasons to help them work through those. Right. And, you know, that to me is another example of how not only we're, we're trying to change um, inherent brain patterns and really get to the, the, the neuropharmacology changes that we want to stabilize people, but there's all these other... Um, you know, brain adaptations that have happened to create these symptoms that people have, cravings, anxiety, um, that are maybe nonspecific, but that create emotional responses. And, and these are the things more so that the neurofeedback is targeting, not so much the structural changes, but the experience okay. around them and the way that, you know, the, the global picture of the brain is really tolerating these different, you know. So, so for instance, feelings. with biofeedback, I'm sitting. I have another question when yeah, and you're I don't done. Care. But, uh, <laughs> so if I'm doing biofeedback, I'm sitting watching my heart rate, I'm watching my breathing, and I'm trying to get those in control mm-hmm. by things I'm watching and relaxing and doing things. How is that different than what am I watching when I'm doing neurofeedback? Yep. Good call. Um, so that's back to the patient experience, right? Yeah. You, so I've now done two sessions. Um, it's very straightforward and simple. They have a nice Velcro, you know, loop to go around my head. And the guy has used so many different, he's done this for, his name's George Martin. 
happy to do a shout out because Very he's fantastic. Cool. Um, if he, he wants to do a podcast, we should ask him to. Honestly, he'd probably love to. <laughs> okay. He works out of Little Canada, um, so not too far here, right in the metro. He he does ShamWow pads with a mixture of just like super salinated water um, to do the, you know, to the, have the electric transmission to the, to, the, to the computer program. And you essentially are targeting the wave patterns that we were talking about earlier. And I mm-hmm. think in my case, we were using theta waves. We were targeting prefrontal cortex. Yep. And um, he's saying, you know, when you're, when you're 40 hertz frequency is overactive, that's, you know, a sign of your ADHD acting up. You know, my brain is actually working slower than it should be because I'm overthinking, right? Oh. And so what we're going to do is basically whenever that is not overactive, we're going to, so he sits me down and we're, I'm looking at a screen and it's just like a, you know, um, planet earth, you know, <laughs> nothing too crazy, but it's a little bit, you know, it draws me, keeps my attention. And he says, you know, just, just pay attention, just sit there and pay attention you can talk to me. doesn't matter. You know, I started drifting up to sleep after a while. I said, that's fine. <laughs> um, you know, and the screen is bright and the volume's normal. And then if the waves are coming to be overactive again in that maladaptive pattern, the screen dims a little bit and the volume turns down a little so you bit. you have to focus harder. You, no. You focus like, less. You just, you just keep paying attention and you don't actually really try to do anything different. Oh. I would think like, oh my gosh, it got dimmer, which means I'm overthinking and I'm, I'm, not focusing, so now I need to focus on focusing to then get it to go bright again, but that's not the case. And, you know, I was asking, it's like, this, this kind of sounds like meditation, you know, that kind of sure. sounds like, you know, yes. the sort of the letting thoughts go exercise and the, the, the calming technique. And he's like, yeah, sure, if you want to look at it that way, that's fine. Yeah, you can he's look at it however like, you want, yeah. He's like, you know, we know what waves, what brain waves are associated with pathology and ADHD, and we've hmm. seen that in you, and so we're going to target a different way, and you can think about it all you want, but what we're doing is going to unconsciously let your brain get to a, a place where you're not struggling as much. So the things dim because you're overthinking or over whatever, then what happens? Well, and it's not even that specific. Things are dimming because your brain is showing that pattern that we know is associated with those symptoms. Hmm. Well, that's the thought, right? And so you just keep watching and you keep sort of unconsciously reinforcing the brighter screen. You don't have to try to do anything else. Your brain will figure it out for you is the idea. And so he said he had a guy come in that was super resistant, had been through prisons up and down, you know, wasn't into doctors, didn't want anything to do with any, any of this, right? And he just had the guy listen first. He didn't have to watch anything. The guy didn't want anything to do with it. He said, okay, just put the headphones on and listen, you know? And over time, he just slowly would allow the therapy to happen, and it was working for him. Wow. Weird. So, that, so to, Weird, to right? kind of go back to, like, what Kurt said, you know, you're watching your heart rate, you're watching your breathing, you know, neurofeedback, you're watching your heart rate, you take a couple of deep breaths and you can watch your heart rate come down. Sure. So you're reacting to what you're seeing, but you're, the neurofeedback, what you just described, sounds like you're actually not supposed to react to what you're seeing. And maybe a different practitioner has a slightly different way of working through that or describing it. This is fascinating to me. It's crazy. Mm. You know, you know I, I'm going to confess, I, I have done some of this and I was <laughs> not concentrating. I actually bent a spoon with my mind. Oh, okay, that's a lie. The one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I bent the spoon up. Yeah, I was thinking too hard. But but now take that and, and move it to addiction, mm-hmm. right? And so so what's the focus then? How is it different if, you're, if you have a patient with comorbidities and these other things? How is it different? So the reason this has been a topic in addiction is partly because of this guy named Penniston, right? He, had this, he developed this protocol at the VA, I think it was in the 90s or the 80s, um, 
and he had 15 veterans and over the course of many many years 90 percent of them were completely abstinent compared to their control group that didn't wow. do this and you know had sort of normal rates of abstinence did it matter what their substance of choice was it was all alcohol all in alcohol. this case okay. yep interesting yep. but there has you know a lot of the people who talk about how great this work is really hold his work in high regard mm-hmm. and a lot of the people that are skeptical look at his studies and say you know they weren't really that well done and they're small and they're small so and they haven't been repeated you know but the protocol is often used by practitioners still neat so how long are you there looking at the screen like from the patient perspective half an hour okay yeah pretty mm-hmm. quick so my version of this the way i'm like envisioning this and my you know i <laughs> i texted you guys as we were planning this like let's make an addiction video game I like, love let's, it. <laughs> let's do all these things and when i first started here i was sitting here thinking like i'm gonna make an app so people can do like cbt and connect with their therapists and, and then i'm you know of course then i get busy and i don't i don't have time for this stuff yeah i mean i do but i don't have motivation i don't know who cares um <laughs> i i love thinking about all these concepts and um my idea for neurofeedback is basically you use it in a treatment program in a, you know, in the third, you know, your first stabilization phase or your, your phase two follow up, you know, um, after your 30 day inpatient when you're, when you're, you know, maybe a little bit into things, but you're still kind of reintegrating you know, or you're still kind of figuring out life. You're trying to figure out how to manage your symptoms outside of that nice controlled environment, but you have already a captive audience, you know, a situation like in our, in the twin cities here, we have a program called new way. Um, they, provide like uh, vouchers for housing for people to continue with their IOP programming. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you are involved with their programming, they're going to help you stay housed. So they have a really big following. They have, you know, large numbers that do um, intensive outpatient care. That's a great audience to then sort of just say, Hey, you're already here. Let's, let's have you try this program. Um, It'd be a, it'd be a beautiful place for a randomized control trial. Exactly. For instance. Yeah. So as far as, have they done research, and this is a little bit off just because it's not specifically neurofeedback, but if you're looking at different treatment facilities and ones who are very just, here's meetings, blah, 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 versus ones that maybe do incorporate meditation or kind of that whole mind-body connection, have they looked at success rates in addiction treatment between those type? Just because you said it almost feels like meditation, if that would be kind a of comparison. an extension or a comparison mm-hmm. to at least get more footing. You know, I... I don't, I don't think I've seen anything that really impresses me as far as including this in a regimen and then saying that it's going to improve or not improve. I don't think that study has really been done, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think partially it's because you know, I, I wonder if they're still trying to just nail down those specifics about which protocol might help with like the symptoms we're trying to target. And they're still trying to figure out the, you know, what are we really tr- trying to do here and how can we then find the one thing that we're going to study on a larger scale. Um, you know, sure. like we were talking about mm-hmm. at the beginning, there's so many different ways to approach it. You know, in my reading and very amateur um, reading of, of all these studies, they, they, they haven't found that cohesion to then take it to the next step of, of, of saying, you know, this is going to help in this way or we can compare these two populations. And it's, I, I will say that it, it has, um, it, it looks like from what I've seen, slightly better results for things like alcohol versus things like stimulants. You know, it doesn't seem to be very responsive to really strong substance use issues. Yeah. So, where, where are the studies going now? Canada is one of the main areas of what I've seen. Okay. Um, and again, I think a lot of it's shifting to um, away from EEG, you know, to fMRI, to different ways of looking at it or to what they call QEEG, 
which they, you know, they add their own programming magic to get more high tech results of more focus brain areas, more okay. glow, you know, they just, they're, they're adding a lot more electrodes. They're, they're actually with that technology, they're able to hone in on deeper areas of the brain because the EEG is traditionally cort- cortical. Right. And they don't get down to the nucleus accumbent, to the amygdala, to the areas that we know are a lot more impacted by the addiction experience. So I'm glad you actually interjected first. I'm going to applaud you for that interruption, but don't interrupt me again. Um, <laughs> Shame as, on you. Do you but think thanks. some of the reluctance, and I'm just speculating, some of the reluctance with this might just be the fact that, okay, here I have these electrodes on my head, and oh my God, is this person going to like mess with my brain? Like You already have some people who are a little bit more reluctant to have even MAT because, yeah, so now you put things on their head and they're like, my God, are they going to mess with my brain? Yes, but um, I've seen so many patients because I'm the medical director here at our residential um, and I do lectures once a month and I bring this kind of stuff up and I talk about, you know, when people mention mental health comorbidities, I'll talk about, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation and direct current stimulation, you know, and the things that we're doing that are, you know, the new version, you know, I'm definitely... New version ECT is yeah, where you're going to yeah, go there. Yeah. <laughs> right? But Don't people, make that comparison. No, it's not a good comparison. I was going to stop myself. Um, it's, people are really interested in it. I, I'm more, cool. I'm surprised by how willing people are, are to, you know, because you know, people are struggling, right? They don't know how to take care mm-hmm. of this stuff. And they really, here's the thing, the difference between the two, right? The, anything that's a transcranial stimulation, that's a passive therapy. Okay? Sure. You're just getting something done to you right? That's like an injection for your shoulder versus the neurofeedback. Even though you're not really working that hard, you're really just participating almost unconsciously. Um, it's an act of therapy. You know, you, you're, you are part of that experience. So speaking of that, because like physical therapy is an active therapy, you're supposed to go home and do your exercises. So do you leave and then have to do something before your next time? So they, um, they have home programs, they have home equipment. You know, I was talking with a guy in Duluth and he's like, well, I could send you this heart math thing and I could, you know, that's, um, there's different for biofeedback, for instance, there's plenty of good home equipment. There's really crude, you know, um, headsets for neurofeedback. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen these ads on there for like basically trying to mimic meditation changes by putting on this headset and, like they have it for athletes to improve athletic performance, and well, and they do it for like kids with autism, I think, to I try think to so. like the the really more severe autistic kids. They have headphones to kind of like bring them down and make them less overstimulated. How, oh, ju- how the, about just a magnet on your wrist? So I don't I'm, think that's gonna work. I'm just gonna put up the term binaural beats, which is another sort of new age, new wave kind <laughs> of uh, mm-hmm. thing. A lot of my patients talk to me about that's, binaural beats. Yeah, so it's just like you. It's it's similar to the EEG where you're targeting like frequencies and wavelengths that are like supposedly helping your brain accomplish some of these calming responses and like people use it for insomnia for anxiety there's all these different alternative approaches that are very low risk that can then augment you know some of these i would think this would not work in a schizophrenic patient population what do you think well you know you're putting things in my head and you're i'm just i'm just yeah before you i this is pertinent i think Probably is there not. a difference in age demographic? Because I would think the younger people, younger generations are much more into this holistic thing, into the the meditation things. Um, you know, Kurt's generation are older, <laughs> are much more like, that sounds like Just give me the shot. Right. Yeah, right. So exactly. do you think there's difference? Because like you just said, all your patients are really into this. And so do you think younger people are much more willing to do whatever? You know, maybe. Um, and I think they're more eager 
um, to find uh, versus somebody who's used substances for 20 years and are maybe more hopeless about their prospects. Sure. I don't know what the, what the deal is with that, you know, what, what the difference would be. Um, you know, presumably, yeah, the younger population might be more into this kind of thing. What's, what's it going to take for mainstream medicine and insurance companies to latch onto this? Evidence, probably. Yeah, um, and, and timeline on that, what do you think? Yeah, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I think, you know, honestly, I think that we got to rethink. Can we guarantee it by the end of the year, right, along with the COVID vaccine? Yes. <laughs> It'd be nice to, you know, as I look at it, um, I, I wonder how this can be applied when we're not using our traditional fee-for-service model, right? I mean, that's how all of our healthcare is delivered. Correct. Where you're saying, you know, you were providing a service, you get paid for it, and... Yeah. I, I wish we had a better way of, of, you know, having like a delayed payment model to say, hey, you've tried everything else in addiction. You want to try this? You know, how does it work for your symptoms? If you like it, you know, we'll have an agreement up front that you'll pay us X amount over time yeah. and that kind of thing. You know, kind of like the, the global fee for a pregnancy. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at it, medicine is, I mean, it's always based on studies. I mean, that's what makes us different. And, and you know, medicine's been burned in the past. You know, that whole bloodletting thing kind of fell through. Right. And so, They you didn't know, do studies back then. Yeah. <laughs> so, they didn't really care. So, yeah, I mean, we, dying we, anyway. we need a certain amount of evidence. And I, it's interesting that just some of the, especially that one study, that, you know, a significant difference in, in relapse and in alcohol. So I think I'm hoping there must be quite a few studies going. I mean, are you watching a bunch of these? You know, um, I'm not keeping a super close eye on it. Um, I, I'll kind of take another look every few months, basically, to mm-hmm. see what else has been coming out. Um, and there, when I the last time I looked, which is for your presentation for the Echo, there was, you know, I saw plenty of, you know, uh, you know, submitting for a protocol for this. Right? You see all those articles saying this is how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did see plenty of, you know, promise for potential future issues. And I think. Again, the, the water's a bit muddy with trying to do more advanced things like fMRI and trying to yeah. to um, kind of capture the wave of, of the, the new technological advances. And maybe EEG is what one of the researchers at the U of M told me is sort of, quote-unquote, less sexy, right? Yeah. But right. don't you think that the functional MRI, MRI is just a way to prove that when you use the EEG, you can go back to the EEG and get the same results? Well, that's what I was just going to say. And there is one study that's combining the two. That is what, exactly what the folks what. here are looking at. Yeah. Because I think if you could have the EEG on while you're in the functional MRI, you could correlate the brain patterns on the EEG with the areas lighting up in the MRI. So then you wouldn't necessarily need the MRI long Yeah, you wouldn't need but the again, functional MRI. Back yeah. to my first example, right? So we know that we can see disordered patterns in our reward centers. But do we need to see changes in our reward centers to know that people are getting better? Oh, so the you have the same x-ray, but you're doing better and your functions improved. But we, you know, so back, you know, fMRI, you get the same nucleus accumbens response. Like that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not having a better recovery. That's right? very true. I guess. And the reason I like this so much is that I look at recovery as, you know, um, I don't want to say a dopamine reset, but I use that as a really strong corollary of, you know, people are used to having, giant dopamine shots with their substance of choice. Mm -hmm. Obviously that diminishes over time. That's why you have tolerance. That's why you develop the whole pattern of anyways, people are searching for that. That's why they keep using partly. And when people are into recovery and they're doing all the things that we're telling them to do, they're like, Oh, this isn't like, why would I do this? This doesn't feel as good as using Mm -hmm. substances. Yeah. Um, And so the way I tell people is like, you know, sure. You're not going to get the same dopamine hit, but like 
You give your friend a hug. That's a little dopamine. You go to a meeting. That's a little dopamine. You do your you do your therapy session. That's a little that's a little extra spot. You go to a good have a good meal. You have a nice cup of coffee. You get all these little little bumps in your in your overall you know approach to life. That's sort of building you up and and driving you forward. And this is another one of those extra pieces to just add to your regimen that's going to get you further along the road and, and sort of add to that cumulative, um, you know, what I call the, you know, your sort of what, when I went to treatment back through, how long ago was that? Six years ago now? Um, my counselor called it just like your your spiritual bank. You know, you're sort of putting deposits into your bank. I think that's a common Right. You know, analogy for this. Yeah. And so this is another deposit in the bank. This is another thing you're doing to invest in yourself. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. But, and, and in a way, it's a way for you to understand how you're feeling and and by what you're seeing. Right. You know, it's, be, you it, know, it's the feedback of neurofeedback. Yeah, but it's like understanding why you're feeling it maybe or or how to how to handle that feeling. That's a lot of times you said feeling in like a minute. Yeah. And that's weird. Well, for but you. it's not. It's. <laughs> It's not, and it's, and I don't, I, 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 when I hear that kind of thing, I'm thinking more CBT concepts of okay. like understanding what your processes are and then having a, a way to work on those. Yep. And this is really um, training yourself to just be in a calmer place or be, you know, um, in a less quote unquote pathologic place by just training a certain difference in your brain patterns without trying to do anything interesting and so it's like you do it and and so the big question in the research field is does this stick right after you do 20 sessions is this going to last and then how do we know how do we you know follow up with that appropriately or do you need touch-ups exactly mm-hmm. and so i think once we get to the point where we have good reliable home modules where you can you know um maybe do group type sessions where you can kind of do it's more more automated right i'm i'm imagining you just plugging in your xbox and then just throwing on your headset i'm serious <laughs> no I, i'm not you know this was like i called up my buddy who's an entrepreneur like okay i got this idea we can hijack the xbox with neuro he's like dude shut up the thing, that, the thing is if you're the thing now the switch or whatever it is the thing is if you're like a teenager and your parents get you an xbox you thought it was so you could play games but they really want you to do something they really like, want to take oh, your ADHD. you're trying to get me to do neurofeedback back to the schizophrenics you know now they're just going to see this if they just turn on a game system then they're going to think that someone's messing with their brains so yeah i mean we gotta be careful game. with this seriously yeah. yeah um but i i really think that the technology is getting to the point where this can be a lot more accessible and you can have counselors helping, but then once the regimen is kind of there, then it can almost be on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, because the way that I'm, I'm watching it, you know, you do want an expert to help you find what you're looking for and help tailor, yeah. but you don't, you don't need them there every single session. You so, know, it yeah. doesn't, you know, the way I look at it, you can have techs, you can have students, you can have people learning this and, you know, poach that free labor in our medical system <laughs> that we love poaching and, and make it a scalable thing and make it something that more people can access and use. I like it. Well, we're probably went long, didn't we? We did, but that's okay. It was Thanks, good. Guys. I think the next one is your guy, and then I think we're just going to have to reach for Bessel van der Kolk. I mean. Why not? Right? You know he'd love to talk about this. I would love to meet him. Okay, can I, can I come? <laughs> yeah, I've never, I've yes. Never, I've never read the book, so I'm you not a fan so far. You can come and not curse. Okay. We'll do it without her. You oh, go. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'd be like fangirling. I'd be like, ah. Uh. Anyway. Yeah, Kurt's going to need to be there to kind of just tamp things down probably. Y- yeah, no, I'm not coming. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start talking about feelings and I'm going to fall asleep. No. So Anyway, Alex, thank you Likewise. so much. This, this is was cool. super fun. And yeah. 
Yeah, if, if people could see where we were doing this. <laughs> we're doing it in an, a I mean, biofeedback room. I analogies are kind of spot on, right? Yeah, we're like in a closet. So <laughs> With treadmills and all the stuff that's distracting Kurt's mind. Yeah, so he we'll let... thinking, run, run, run. We will let Battle Legs uh, fire up the band. And uh, thanks again for everybody that's listening. And thanks to Dr. Hubble for joining us for neurofeedback today. So There you go. Thank you both. Hey, take care. Summer even drunk to hell, I sat there nearly lifeless. An old man in the corner sang where the water lilies grow. And on the jukebox, Johnny sang about a thing called love. And it's how are you, kid? What's your name? And how would you? Know. In blood and death neath the screaming sky, I lay down on the ground. And the arms and legs of other men were scattered all around. Some cursed, some prayed, some prayed, then cursed, then prayed and bled some more. No pair of brown eyes waiting for me And a rove and a rove and a rove And I'll go for a pair of brown eyes I looked at him me and all I could do was hate him when Ray and Philomena sang of my elusive dream I saw the streams the rolling hills where his brown eyes were waiting and I thought about a pair of brown eyes then waited once for me so drunk to hell, I left the place, sometimes crawling 